Today, as you probably know, is Palm Sunday. This marks the beginning of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, or Passion Week, which culminates with His death on the cross and His resurrection the following Sunday. And so today, let's consider how transformative the cross was for the thinking of the disciples. The disciples actually had to undergo a transition, a reorientation concerning this brutal means of death. Undoubtedly, the most famous symbol in world history is the cross. It has become an ornament of beauty, a Christmas tree decoration, the floor plan of the Gothic cathedral. Thousands of beautiful white crosses in perfect geometrical alignment stretch across the vast emerald green American military cemetery in Normandy. In 1922, French sculptor Paul Landowski created an iconic statue of Christ, the Redeemer, atop Corcovado Mountain in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. It weighs 635 metric tons, and Christ's arms outstretched to 28 meters, forming the shape of a cross. The Jerusalem cross, which dates the 11th century, depicts a central cross, And in each of the four quadrants is another cross symbolizing the four wounds from the four Roman nails. In Laodicea, archaeologists discovered a rude impression of a cross stamped over the top of a Jewish menorah. Undoubtedly, this was a symbol of a Jewish synagogue that had embraced Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. In Kerala, southern India, Churches adorned with crosses trace their lineage back to 52 A.D. when Thomas, the apostle, probably came to India and founded eight churches. In Beijing, one can find stone inscriptions of beautifully ornamented crosses dating back to the Mongol Empire of the 13th century. And in fact, the origin of Christianity in China goes back much, much earlier Images of Christ Pontocrator, Christ Almighty, with a cruciform halo adorn hundreds of church domes throughout the former Byzantine Empire. Images of crosses were stamped into the coinage of the same empire. Celtic crosses can be found across Ireland and England dating back to the period of Celtic missions in the 9th century through the 12th century. The Celtic cross encircles a transept with a circle, a nimbus ring symbolizing eternity. Going all the way back to ancient Rome, down in the catacombs, there were numerous crosses that adorned the crypts of Christians awaiting resurrection. The fact is, you can find crosses all over the world. And this really is extremely curious. Why has the cross become a universal symbol of hope? A universal symbol of the triumph of good over evil. Crosses in the ancient world were cruel instruments of torture, dreaded by all who fell under the trampling heel of Rome. Josephus tells us the Romans crucified 
500 Jews daily when they overran the city in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem. A century before, in 71 BC, the legendary Spartacus, an escaped slave, former gladiator, and leader of the opposition to Rome in the Third Servile War, finally met with his defeat. And some 6,000 of Spartacus's followers were crucified along the Appian Road, stretching between Rome and Capu. They served as a gruesome deterrent to all future challengers to Rome. No one in Spartacus's day would have imagined or could have imagined our world. A world full of crosses. A world in which the cross has become an object of beauty, a symbol of hope. For the Romans, the cross symbolized the end of hope. Crucifixion sites were the ugliest places in the empire. I've mentioned previously the Alexamenos Graffito. It is the oldest representation of Jesus Christ that has ever been found. On the left side of the image is a crudely drawn Christian man, Alexamenos. One arm is lifted above his head in a posture of worship. The bulbous head of Alexamenos tilts just slightly upward and he gazes on the cross of Christ. And affixed to the cross, we see crudely drawn the naked backside of a man. And the man's head has been replaced with a head of an ass. Scrawled in misshapen characters across the bottom of the image are the words, Alexamenos worships his God. That's the earliest depiction of the crucifixion that has ever been found. And the graffito represents the true Roman view of the cross. Now imagine your job is to explain the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ in a first century Roman culture that viewed Jesus as nothing more than a crucified donkey. Imagine your job is to explain the meaning of that horrible instrument of torture. Imagine explaining the cross to a culture who refused to even speak publicly about such a gruesome means of execution. The great Roman order Cicero proclaimed the very word cross should be far removed from the person of the Roman citizen, from his thoughts, from his eyes, and his ears. The very mention of the cross is unworthy of a Roman citizen. So imagine being a Roman citizen and your task, your special task, is to reorient the thinking of a whole empire and to transform the cross into an object of beauty, to transform a symbol of destruction into a symbol of hope. Well, that task 
fell to one person in particular. One man through whose writings the cross was transformed. He was a Jewish man from Tarsus. His name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. And Paul, on his missionary journeys, could have gone in virtually any direction he wanted. But he chose to move northwest out of Jerusalem, steadily into prominent Roman cities, venturing ever forward to the heart of the Roman Empire, to Rome itself. And along the way, writing letters, transforming the thinking of a whole empire about that cross. Paul's fellow disciples would soon write several histories of Jesus of Nazareth. They would tell through four gospels how he lived, how he died, and how he resurrected. But even before those histories were written, Paul attempted to explain the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. You don't get that in the Gospels. You get that in the epistles. What does it really mean? It was his job to transform the ugliest symbol in the empire into an object of wisdom and beauty. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's look at some of the earliest words of the New Testament. I put a question to my sons this week. As I was putting them to bed, I said, what do you think was the first part of the New Testament ever written? And one said, well, Matthew 1, right? No. Paul's epistles came first, and Paul's epistle to the Corinthians actually came quite early. I preached from this passage in May of 2015. That was seven years ago, and I preached in this passage when I was first called to pastor UBC, because this is a passage that really has long just oriented my own thinking about the nature of gospel ministry. And I've made, I think, two additional references to this passage since that time. But I would like to return to it this morning because, again, it really is a definitive passage that ought to shape our view of the cross and our philosophy of ministry. I'll not preach the identical message, but I do want to go back over some of the same material. I think seven years is long enough to really go back and take a hard look at this passage, a careful look at this passage, and really see what it has to say for us in light of Palm Sunday in the light of the crucifixion that's to come. So again, the Gospels relate the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is the epistles and largely the epistles of Paul that explain and transform the meaning of the cross. What actually happened on that cross when Jesus died? Well, Paul begins by greeting the Corinthian church. And not merely the Corinthians, but also in the words of verse 2, look at the end of the verse, all those 
who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's us. Paul greets us. And Paul also acknowledges certain difficulties in the Corinthian church. They were a divided assembly, much as we were seven years ago. And Paul then acknowledges, down in verse 17, that he was commissioned to preach the gospel. And how exactly does he preach that gospel? Well, he goes on to say this, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross has extraordinary power, but I don't want to detract from that power through my eloquent oratory. The fact is, there is nothing particularly elegant about preaching the cross. Let's just be really clear about that from the beginning. This is not an eloquent message. Paul puts it this way in verse 18. For the word or the message of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul uses the term folly or foolishness six times. This is a foolish message. However, Paul's job is to reorient our thinking. An object of despair becomes an object of hope. So Paul uses a second term also to define the cross, the term wisdom. It's folly. It's wisdom. The term wisdom occurs 52 times in the New Testament, and 17 or one-third of those uses occur in less than two chapters, from 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through to chapter 2 and verse 16. This is one-third of the entire usages of the word wisdom in all the New Testament. So Paul argues in these verses that there are two kinds of wisdom. And they are, in fact, mutually exclusive. There is the natural wisdom of man, which is foolish in God's sight. And there is the wisdom of man centered on the cross. I'm sorry, there's the wisdom of God centered on the cross of Christ, which is foolishness in man's sight. These are mutually exclusive wisdoms. So what I want to do today is preach on how the cross ought to just reorient our thinking. And then next week for Easter, I'll preach a second sermon concerning how the tomb reorients our thinking. All right? How does the cross reorient our, th- reorient our thinking? And then how does the tomb reorient our thinking? Now, to understand the context of this passage, we've got to pick up two background pieces of information. The first concerns the kinds of opposition that Paul experienced outside the church. Paul, on his missionary journeys, was constantly hounded by the Judaizers, the very individuals who were just adamantly opposed to the ministry of Jesus Christ. They sought to destroy Paul's ministry and even to murder him. 
And the Jews constantly demanded of Paul as the head of Jesus, miraculous signs. Give us empirical, experiential confirmations of your teaching. That's what we really need. Give us the signs. Give us the miracles. And of course, Jesus constantly performed miracles, but the Jews always wanted one more, and Jesus finally said, enough. Well, these are the same people now that are coming after Paul. And not until Paul reaches Athens does he finally shake the Judaizers off his tail. But here in Athens, the philosophical capital of the ancient world, there's a new combatant awaiting the Greeks, the philosophers, the ancient rationalists who subjected all knowledge to the intellectual restraints of human logic. And Paul in Athens, Acts 17, is largely unsuccessful. We do not read of him founding a church in Athens. So from Athens, he makes his way on to Corinth. And that's the first context. We've got the unbelieving opposition from the Jews and from the Greeks. The second context concerns two kinds of opposition that Paul experienced within the church. The Corinthian church was a worldly and a divided assembly. The Corinthians abandoned the simplicity of the gospel and began turning their preachers into celebrities. Some claim Peter, the miracle worker, the eyewitness who had extraordinary experiential empirical appeal. Yeah, we are followers of Peter. Others exalted Apollos. It was a gifted order who appealed undoubtedly to the rashly minded among them. Yeah, we follow Apollos. And then you had the pious people say, oh yeah, we follow Christ. These Corinthian believers were becoming very much like the Judaizers and the Greeks that Paul sought to resist. So Paul will have to prove to the Corinthians once again the Christian message is absolute foolishness to unbelievers. And his argument runs from chapter 1 and verse 18 down to chapter 2 and verse 5. And it divides into three parts. Three arguments demonstrating the Christian message is foolish. Let's take a look. First of all, Paul says, would you consider the content of the gospel message? That's verse 18. For the word, the message, the content of the cross, when you put that into your sermon, this is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message we preach, Paul says, is deliberately offensive to human pride. When an unbeliever hears the message of a suffering Savior, his initial reaction is, well, that's just ludicrous. Early Christian apologist Minucius Felix tells of trying to win Romans to Christ. And he says this is how they respond. The cross, says the Roman, is a, quote, sick delusion. A senseless and crazy superstition. An old womanly superstition. Justin Martyr uses the term madness to describe the pagan's attitude to the cross. 
The fact is, crucifixions were common in the classical world. But they were reserved for the worst criminals, for murderers, for traitors of state, for rebellious slaves, for pirates. Crucifixions were always public, serving as deterrence for would-be criminals. Crucifixion victims hung naked along busy roads. Rarely, almost never, were their bodies buried, but left to rot under the blistering sun. In Rome, crucifixions were carried out on the Esquiline Hill, a place few people ventured, because vultures came to devour the remains of decaying bodies. The Romans referred to the vulture as the Esquiline Bird. Pliny, the famous Roman governor, the governor of Bithynia, describes Christians and Christianity rather as a perverse and extravagant superstition. Christians, he says, are wretches whose ceremonies center on a man put to death for his crimes. What kind of a God is just so powerless he suffers the cruel fate of thieves and highwaymen? That's the message we preach, Paul says. But God's choice of crucifixion should not surprise us, Paul says, because Isaiah predicted that God was going to accomplish his purpose in a very unusual way. That's verse 19. Here's what Isaiah said. Here's what God said through Isaiah. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. Those who think they're so intelligent, I am going to thwart it. God will devise a plan of salvation, friends, that will in fact confound the worldly wise. When someone looks at Christianity and he says, this message of a crucified Savior is just absurd, that's precisely the response God intended. That's exactly right. God designed it that way. God's truth does not meet the intellectual criteria of the world's elite. So they just derided his foolishness. But in so doing, they just remain ignorant of God's wisdom. Now, Paul continues with a series of four derisive rhetorical questions that illustrate that the world, through its wisdom, just cannot, just cannot comprehend God's wisdom. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? He's referring to the Jewish scholar, the legal scholar. Where is the debater of this age? Where is the Greek philosopher back there at Athens who wants to hear some new thing constantly but rejects the resurrection? Paul continues, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? This is all very deliberate. As if to say, they're just they're not going to understand. And friends, are you just really, really comfortable with what Paul says next? Verse 21. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God to the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Here's what Paul is saying. God applies his mind to devise a puzzle 
that the world through its own mind can't understand. It's all very deliberate. God is deliberately shaming human wisdom only by submitting themselves to what initially strikes them as utterly ridiculous can lost men come to know God. God designed it that way. Nevertheless, there is a brilliance to God's message because it's one that children can understand at age five and sometimes four and occasionally even three while first-class intellectuals can't get it. What if I were to ask you to devise a puzzle that the world's greatest minds just can't understand, but your kids can? That's exactly what God does. And verses 22 and 23 now explain why it is the world doesn't understand. For the Jews, the Jews demand signs and Greeks to seek wisdom. That's why they don't get it. The Jews are saying more signs. The Greeks are saying this is not wise. So what does God give them when they make these demands? Give me something wise. Give me some signs. What does God give them? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. And what happens? A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So here again are those Jews and they are obsessed with their empiricism, with their signs. Just give us the show. They were infatuated with what has experiential appeal, what can be confirmed to the senses. They asked for yet another miracle. And God gives them a crucified Savior instead. Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with the rabbi Trypho, records the rabbi stumbling over the cross. Your so-called Christ says Trypho, is without honor and glory. He has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. That's the Jewish reaction. Likewise, the Greeks loved their wisdom. They were interested in the rational pursuit of truth. They had no time for a cross. But again, Cicero says, the very mention of the cross is unworthy of us. Don't even talk about it. Well, these two, the empiricist Jews and the rationalist Greeks, represent two very, very long traditions in Western thought. And Paul argues that these are not the means by which God is making his gospel clear. I want to pause right here and just clear up a potential misunderstanding. Paul does not say that these are illegitimate means of knowledge. We have scientists in our church. He's not saying that science is all bad. The fact is, elsewhere, Paul makes use of both empiricism and rationalism, these means of human knowledge. God even condemns people for failing to use their faculties to observe him in the world all around us. God condemns us for not knowing there's a creator through science. So Paul is not saying these are all illegitimate means of knowledge. It's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is neither of these are sufficient to decisively convince a person to accept a crucified Savior. If you think people are going to come along and accept Christ because you had this incredible scientific experiment, 
this incredible rational dialogue, this incredible apologetic, it's just not going to work that way. In 2004, the highly respected philosopher, a longtime outspoken atheist, Anthony Flew, announced that he had actually changed his mind about God. This just sent shockwaves through the philosophical community. Created a lot of anger, by the way. His continuing work in philosophy, coupled with compelling DNA evidence for design in the cell, convinced him that God exists. So he showed up at a debate and he argued, I think there's a God. And he later wrote a memoir about his conversion to belief in God. But when he wrote that memoir, he had not become a Christian. And this is what he wrote. I am entirely open to learning more about the divine reality. He even admits, if you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, it seems to me that Christianity is the one to beat. But then he adds, no other religion enjoys anything, anything like the combination of a charismatic figure like Jesus and a first-class intellectual like St. Paul. And that's the stumbling block. Those are sad words because Jesus was not trying to put on a show for people. And Paul was not celebrating his intellect. The flu had yet to embrace the folly, the foolishness of the cross. So Paul's first argument, again, is the content of the Christian message is actually foolish. And now beginning with verse 26, he advances a second argument. Second, he says, consider the recipients of the gospel message. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. All right, not many of you are so smart, is what Paul is saying, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul essentially says, church, just look around the room. And then look within. How many of us are the world's elite intellectuals? How many of us have achieved celebrity status? How many Roman emperors, senators, or military generals actually believe the message? No, it's the weak and the foolish. It's us. That's what Paul is saying. If you just think about your own conversion for a moment, how many of you were just won over to Christ because of some irresistible argument? You got it all figured out. Nobody else could. You got it. That's not how you came to Christ. Now notice that Paul does say not many. He has not excluded all great men or all highly educated people. That's not what he's saying. I am thankful for some like our own senator, Tim Scott with a clear testimony of salvation. But the fact is, historically, very few people of great eminence, 
People with great worldly credentials have actually embraced the truth. A second century philosopher and outspoken opponent of Christianity, a man named Celsus, a very learned man, wrote, Christians are able to convince only the foolish, the dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. Well, why has God chosen the foolish people of the world and excluded the worldly wise? Why did God do this? And the answer is right there in verse 29. Here's why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There just simply aren't going to be people in the new world who tell you, you know, I, I got there by my own doing. I figured it all out. I employed my reasoning. I found this sort of intellectual path to heaven that nobody else could find. Everybody gets there the same way by submitting to the message of the cross. But friends, if you really think about it, isn't that very, very reassuring that your eternal security does not depend on your intellectual capacities? I'm thankful for that. Now, the fact is, we do have an unusually educated assembly here at UBC, and that's largely because of our connection with local universities. But let not one of us ever forget how we actually came to Christ. And look at verse 31. Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's what your boast is. I've told you on previous occasions if there is one disciple of Brent Cook in the world, that's just one too many. The boast has to be in Christ. Become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our church will never thrive because of its intellectual diversity, although we have that here. We are not actually going to attract the world to our ministry because of our intellectual abilities. It's simply not how you attract people. Christ will build the church the same way he builds every church, the foolish message of the cross. Just, just, just don't forget how you came to Christ. Now, I'm not saying Christianity is like intellectually inferior. I think it's quite brilliant, frankly. But don't forget that you have to come to Christ through that cross, which is foolish. So Paul argues that the content and the recipients of the gospel message suggest that it is not wise by worldly standards and this third argument now is taken up in chapter 2. In verse 1, Paul says, Would you consider my personal example? And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in, look at these words, and in much trembling. Paul, trembling. Paul describes his physical disposition, disposition as weak, fearful. He's visibly shaking. Perhaps a month earlier, he had suffered a savage mob beating in Philippi. And his body, doubtless, still showed the bruising. He totters on legs that are still healing from the blows. I imagine that while traveling the 45 miles between Athens and Corinth, Paul reflects on his experiences thus far. He has been everywhere resisted by the Jews. He has left the philosophers back in Athens to their idle speculations. 
And he's really thinking, okay, how do I reach the Corinthians with the gospel? It may even be that Paul adjusts his presentation when he comes into Corinth. And Paul determines that he will not attempt to win the Corinthians through any kind of fancy rhetoric, any kind of crafty manipulation of words or flowery speech. I'm not going to do that, he says. The second awakening, there was a flamboyant preacher named Charles Finney who just appeared like this meteor on the American frontier. I mentioned him on Wednesday night. Charles Finney had been trained as a lawyer like Paul. He had no formal theological education, and in 1821, he experienced what he called a soul-shaking conversion and set about to be a preacher the same week. Those who heard him described his speech as forceful, direct, and calculated to manipulate. After all, he had been a lawyer by trade. Then he advocated several new, quote, new measures in revivalism, including haranguing sinners by name from the pulpit and placing an anxious bench down in front of the congregation. And he would situate sinners there and manipulate them until he could extract the conversion from their lips. He would hold services well into the night where the campfire sent eerie shadows creeping into the woods and aroused in the terrors of hell and anxious souls. It was all very contrived. And most disturbingly, Finney wrote in his lectures on revivalism, and I quote, a revival is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely a philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. Use the right rhetoric. Use the right turn of phrase. Manipulate people just right and you can get them saved. In other words, he says, the awakening of the soul to Christ has nothing to do with the work of the Spirit. It depends entirely upon the preacher's clever manipulation of words and methods. And his influence on the ethos of American evangelism really has been enormous. But look at Paul's words in chapter 2 and verse 4. And my speech and my message were not implausible And that word can be translated enticing, and enticing words of wisdom. That's not how I came to you, Corinthians. So friends, here are three arguments demonstrating the Christian message is foolishness to the unbeliever. But is it really foolish? Remember, Paul also used the word wisdom. And beginning in chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul hastens to clarify that even though the world thinks the message of the cross is foolish, it's really not that at all. In fact, the cross is wisdom. There's an ancient, mysterious, immortal, divine wisdom unknown to the world at large. Paul says, verse 6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. That's the wisdom of the world's elite. Verse 7, here's the wisdom, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Here is an ancient wisdom known forever in the mind of God, but it has been veiled from the world's sight. 
Here is great wisdom that comes to the cross. But friends, how do we get it? Well, in verse 9, Paul reiterates the source is not human. Follow this very carefully in context. Verse 9 is often misunderstood. Read it in context. All right, let's do that. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, okay, those are your two most important empirical faculties, your seeing and your hearing. What are you talking about in context? Nor the heart of man imagine, and Paul is referring to your rational faculties, the NIV translates this, no mind has conceived. When you put those two together, this is what he's saying, neither empiricism nor rationalism, these human means of knowing, delivers, keep reading, what God has prepared for those who love him. You're not going to get what God has prepared for you through human reasoning. That's not the source. Paul is arguing that if you have the capacity to understand God's wisdom displayed through the cross, then you did not receive that through human endeavor, through human empiricism, or through human rationality. So where did you get it? Well, keep reading. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And six times, the remainder of the chapter, Paul identifies the Holy Spirit as a third source of knowledge that directly convinces us of the wisdom of God displayed to the folly of the cross. That is the Holy Spirit's role. And friends, does this surprise us? It really should not surprise us at all if we have taken seriously Christ's last command. And hopefully you know this because I've said it before. Christ's last command was not the Great Commission. That was not his last command. In the Great Commission, Jesus commands his disciples to just span out from Jerusalem until they make disciples of all the nations. But actually, that was his second to last command. His last command is actually found in Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. And essentially, he commands his disciples to go back to Jerusalem and not to preach, and not to evangelize, and in fact, to do absolutely nothing. That's the last command. Go back to Jerusalem and don't do anything. But wait. Wait for what? Wait for the coming and the empowering of the Spirit. And then go preach. And then go evangelize the nations. Friends, when you have taken an interest in someone's soul for the last 60 minutes because you sat down next to them on an airplane... How long do you suppose that God's Spirit has been interested in that person? You think it really all comes down to you in 60 minutes? There is a member of the Trinity who has been involved in the plan of redemption from eternity past. His power is equal to God's. His knowledge is equal to God's. His love is equal to God's. He is, in fact, God. It is the Spirit then who convinces us of the wisdom of God and the folly of the cross. What if, what if Charles Finney was actually correct? What if it really was up to you? Every one of us should just find it absolutely liberating to recognize in the end, it is the Spirit that does the convincing. It really is not up to us. Now friends, in conclusion, it's possible that a sermon like this could really give you the wrong impression. 
Some might be tempted to walk away thinking Christianity is just isn't, it isn't philosophically robust or scientifically plausible. Well, I tell all of my seniors in an apologetics class that Christianity has the right answers to life's ultimate questions. It really, really does. But Paul is arguing, though, that you are never going to understand those answers unless you come to Christ humbly through the cross. When you bow the knee at the cross of Christ, the light of the world will just penetrate your mind. Through Christ's light brought to you by the Spirit, you will begin to understand the deepest and most perplexing questions the human mind can even form. But it really, truly begins at the cross. That's what Paul is saying in verses 9 and 10. And if you don't believe that, then try asking a man who was considered one of the greatest intellects on the planet before he passed away recently. I'm speaking of the great theoretical physicist and atheist Stephen Hawking, whose most influential book is called A Brief History of Time. In the conclusion of that book, he writes, quote, we find ourselves in a bewildering world. We want to make sense of what we see around us. What is our place in it, and where did it and we come from? That's the question we all have. And in the final paragraph of the book, the final paragraph, this is what he admits. We still have no answers. But if we do discover answers someday, he says, quote, they should be understandable on broad principles by everyone, not just a few scientists. I actually agree. I think a child of five should understand. That's truly everyone, isn't it? We should all, he says, take part in the discussion of the question of why we in the world exist. And here are the, here are the final words of his book. If we find the answers... It would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. Look at verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as so as to instruct him? And look at how Paul concludes, but we have the mind of Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you have displayed your knowledge of the cross. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here today relying on his or her own intellect, this might be a day of humbling and a day of submission where he or she embraces the cross. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.